1: This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a tremendous variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device in your possession, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, whatever you happen to have. And here's the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. That's right. It's now a 30-day free trial. That's twice as long as the old free trial. Go get some classics of world literature like Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy or Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky or how about Dante's Divine Comedy. Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a little kickback. That's nice. I enjoy that. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a terrific deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God.
2: You are not alone. You have found other people.
3: You and I have a friend in common.
1: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful.
0: Jake stated did what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
1: And now here's your host, Brad Listy.
0: Just one person at just one time. Right. <laughs> All right, everybody,
1: here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the voice in your head. This is me talking into your brain. My guest today is Maude Newton, the infamous Maude Newton. For anybody who spends any amount of time online in book world, she is a veritable household name. She's a writer, a blogger, a reviewer, and an attorney at law. And she's at work on a novel, an excerpt from which won the 2009 Narrative Prize, And she's written for a variety of publications, including the New York times, the LA times book forum, the Boston globe, and the Owl, the owl, the Owl, uh, just to name a few places. And I'm very excited to have her here on the program. Uh, and I should mention that this is the 50th episode of this program, 50 episodes. We've made it. Uh, thank you once again to everybody for tuning in over the past few months and, uh, giving this thing such a good launch. I appreciate it a ton. And, uh, I look forward to more. So, uh, otherwise, uh, where to begin? I want to discuss AWP. I'm just back in Los Angeles after a weekend in Chicago and, uh, there's plenty of, you know, plenty to talk about. Uh, but more immediately, I want to talk about AutoZone. I want to talk about AutoZone. Uh, I spent a few hours, not a few hours, a couple, two and a half hours at AutoZone today of all places. And, uh, it started this morning when my wife reminded me, uh, that I needed to call AAA and get my car jumped. Because uh, the battery had died before I left for AWP. And uh, I just I, I didn't get around to fixing it. So uh, I call AAA and the guy comes out and he jumps my car. And he tests the battery. And he tells me that the battery is essentially out of juice. You know, even though the jump worked. You know, as soon as I uh, turned the car off, it was going to be uh, trouble. And the only way to fix it was to go someplace like AutoZone and get the battery recharged. Which he told me they would do for free. So I go over to AutoZone. And it was, uh, it was actually my first time ever in an auto zone. Uh, I'm not very mechanically inclined. I'm not one of those guys who's uh, good with tools, unfortunately. So I drive over there and I park. And as soon as I park, I'm in this strip mall. This woman comes out of a sushi restaurant right in front of me. Uh, and she tells me that I can't park in the spot that I'm in uh, if I'm not eating at the restaurant. So I say okay and I go to restart my car. Uh, but of course the battery has already died because I turned off the ignition. So then I have to explain uh, to this nice woman, uh, this like Japanese-American woman, that my battery has died, and uh, I'm kind of stuck. So then I go over to AutoZone, and I walk in, and uh, immediately I am struck by the oddness of the scene. It was, uh, it was fluorescently lit, and uh, there, there happened to be a, a young woman at the cash register. She was paying for something, and it was clear that she was very upset, and she was trying to convey that upset to the cashier, who was male... And about 25 years old. And so I'm standing there. And uh, George Harrison's. <laughs> the, the song My Sweet Lord. Was on the uh, sound system. And it was, it was on the speakers. At an unusually loud volume. Like almost excessive. But not quite. And uh, it was just an odd song. To be hearing in an auto zone. Uh, and I made note of it. As I stood there. And uh, within seconds of, of uh, being there. And noticing this angry young woman. And uh, noticing that my sweet Lord is playing uh, behind me, I hear this uh, this guy uh, humming along with the song uh, at an excessive volume, and and with excessive feeling. It was just very strange. And so I, I turn around, I look over my left shoulder, and I see that it's a mentally disabled guy, uh, about forty five or fifty years old, and he's got an armload full of matchbox cars. And uh, now he's singing, and he's very happy, and he's very loud, and very friendly. And, uh, he's, he's kind of humming and singing along with my sweet Lord. And, uh, the cashier kind of gives him a wave, which, which seems to indicate familiarity. And then, uh, this girl has a word with the cashier and it's an angry word. And he instructs her to go get something from a nearby aisle. And she walks over there almost in tears and kind of disappears down the aisle. And uh, I can hear her removing something from the shelf. And when she does this, something falls and there is the sound of breaking glass And immediately she's like I didn't do it The package was open I didn't do it It just fell out You know It's not my fault And uh, this mentally disabled guy (laughs) Who might I I should also add He was dressed up In kind of hip hop attire You know He's like It was very odd He was a middle aged white guy And he was wearing like Adidas sweats And a t-shirt And uh, like black running shoes And his hat was on backwards And everything was kind of oversized If that makes any sense And as soon as he hears this uh, glass shattering on the floor uh he starts shouting at the top of his lungs uh, seven seven years of bad luck seven years of bad luck and uh this girl hears this and emerges from the aisle and kind of turns the corner and is enraged and she glares at this guy and starts shouting at him she's like thank you thank you you know like uh she doesn't mean it obviously uh and she doesn't realize that he's mentally disabled. She, she's she's uh, furious with him for uh, mocking her. And what's uh, what's kind of funny about it is that he was totally unaffected by her anger, uh, like her shouting didn't bother him at all. And it was sort of this tense, awkward moment. And uh, my sweet lord was playing the entire time. And and at the point that this all happened, like the breaking glass and the, and the you know shouting, uh, seven years of bad luck. It was the part of the song where. Um, you know, they're kind of singing Hare Krishna, and you know what I'm talking about. And it was just odd. I found it odd that I was there and that all this was happening. And uh, long story short, I got my battery charged, uh, but it was so dead that I had to wait for more than an hour. So I wound up going into this sushi restaurant uh, and eating, even though it was like this dirty strip mall, and it wasn't appetizing at all. Uh, I just kind of I felt bad for having my car parked out in front uh, in one of their, like, three slots and our spots and uh, I don't know it was an empty it was totally empty too and that uh that bummed me out, and I felt bad for these people who were really nice and uh I just seemed sad in this empty restaurant, you know, and like we talk about like rejection as writers, but imagine being uh in you know, like a, a restaurateur restaurant tour and you know you open you open a restaurant and and nobody shows up, and every day you're just kind of standing there waiting in this empty restaurant. I just find that miserable so I went in there, and I had lunch, and I sat at the counter, and I talked to these people, and I waited for my battery to charge, uh, and it was an unexpected midday experience. So, uh, otherwise, uh, AWP, uh, it's a big, it was, that was a big experience, and, and uh, unexpected in many ways, and I'm still processing it. I was there on Saturday. It was a quick trip. It was a bit chaotic. And uh, it was very fun meeting people whom I have known online for months or even years, and to finally put a face with a name and uh, an avatar photo was great. So I got to say hello to people like Kevin Samsell, Derek Brown uh, of Right Bloody Press, uh, Cynthia Hawkins. I got I got to meet finally uh, B.L. Pollock, and I had a good conversation. Blake Butler, Molly Gaudry, XTX, uh, Roxanne Gay, who uh, who hugged me despite her aversion to hugging. Uh, Adam Wilson, who's been a guest on this program, Laura Vandenberg, Zach Dodson, uh, Melissa Broder, who will be on this program soon, Elisa Chappelle, who's also been a guest. So the list goes on, and I'm forgetting quite a few people. And if you're one of them, please forgive me. Uh, my brain just isn't organized. And uh, that was the that was probably the highlight. You know, the people meeting folks, uh, catching up with old friends, and uh, you know, meeting some new people. And uh, hopefully, I got the word out about this show and the Nervous Breakdown. Uh, To a lot of people who might actually be interested Book people uh, Book nerds and so forth So you know in terms of what I actually did uh, At AWP You know most of like most all of my time Was spent walking around in circles Handing out these 4 by 6 cards That I had made up beforehand And uh, I was doing that And I was talking to people And I think I handed out over like 1200 of these things Ultimately And uh, a lot of people had heard of the show and were, were actively, not actively listening when I was talking to them, but, you know, had, had listened to quite a few episodes and uh, were fans, which was nice to hear. And uh, ultimately, uh, you know, I, th- I think I wound up giving the same explanation of what I was doing several hundred times in a six hour span. Like I can't, uh, I can't overstate that. I was, I was talking and I was saying essentially the same thing and I did it several hundred times in six hours, which requires a lot of human energy. Uh, it was like I, w- I was talking so much that I got dehydrated <laughs> uh, it was too much almost and and you know I'm a social person or I can be I'm kind of right in the middle of the spectrum like I can do either thing really I can be social uh, or I can be by myself either way is fine I think I like a little of both uh, but in this instance I was hyper social and hyper talkative and functioning at a level that was way beyond my normal capacity and, uh, at the end of the day, when it was all over with, uh, my brain was so decimated that I went back to my sister's place. Uh, she lives in Chicago and I was staying with her and I, I remember going back there, uh, and she and her boyfriend were actually gone at the time. And so I just sat there alone in the dark, uh, for about an hour and, uh, I drank a glass of wine and, uh, then I fell asleep while sitting up for a little bit. So that was my day, and I, you know I don't have any audio from the trip. I had planned on doing that, you know some on the ground reporting or whatever. Uh, but the reality on the ground was just much different than I had anticipated, and I was so busy uh, that I didn't really have time to think or do anything. It, it was a mass of humanity, and it swallowed me and uh you know I got to say, I feel a little deficient in that scenario to some extent, like like you know, I was watching this thing. Build up online and, and what I was seeing on social media, uh, like what other people were thinking and experiencing at AWP compared to what I actually experienced myself were two very different things. Like on social media, people were raving about it like it was summer camp or some kind of uh, epic concert or something like almost like it was a religious experience, a, tri- a trip to literary Mecca. And uh, I don't know, like I couldn't access it at that level. But uh, then, you know, I've, I have trouble accessing any kind of religious experience. Uh, you know, I don't want to sound, I don't want uh, to be a downer. I was happy to be there. Uh, I was glad to be, you know, around uh, a lot of people that I like quite a bit. Uh, but I was also glad to, to only be there for a day. And uh, I don't know if that indicates some sort of deficiency on my part. Uh, and I certainly don't want to be a curmudgeon or rain on somebody else's parade. Uh, I'm very glad that people had fun. Uh, you know, fun is good. I think I just have a hard time processing that kind of chaos. And, uh, you know, it felt like work to me, largely. And it was fluorescently lit, just like AutoZone. So, and and, you know, there's also uh, an element of it that goes largely unspoken. But when you get that many writers together in a room, in a giant hotel, or two giant hotels, and all this stuff is going on, and there's thousands of us all in one room, and all these writers are fighting uh, for attention in the world of American Letters, and uh, there's such a limited amount of attention to go around, you know, uh, there's something Darwinian about it, i got to say, and it makes me a little uneasy. You know, there, there were uh, a lot of nerves there in Chicago. I don't care what anyone says. A lot of exposed nerves pulsating all around me.
0: Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, go get your copy right now wherever you buy books
3: Um when I started book blogging I really just did it because I didn't have a lot of friends who liked to read the same sorts of books I did or if they did read them they weren't interested in talking about them in exactly the same way that I was or they they didn't agree with me about things and and weren't sort of interested you know i i'm just very very interested in storytelling and interested in books and i thought it would be best for me and for my friends if i just sort of created a space for myself where i could do that and um
1: and what year was this I, this was like
3: this was almost 10 years ago so oh. this was in may of 2002 and and i think you'll find um You know, I know Jessa Kristen, who's a friend of mine now, started Book Slut a little before I did, and hers was one of the sites I was reading um, that motivated and inspired me and Layla Lalami, who had at the time a site called Moorish Girl and who has since published a collection of short stories and a novel. She was also doing it and Michael Orsifer of the Literary Saloon and Dennis Lloyd Johnson of at that time, Moby Lives. Uh, You know, there, there were a lot of people blogging about books and there were a lot of people blogging about culture. Um, Actually, a lot of people is, is incorrect. There were a few people doing these things and um, it, it seemed like a really novel thing to do and, and also like a fun thing to do. So I just started doing it. And I guess what I didn't realize when I started doing it is that I felt like we were all having this uh, informal conversation with each other or just sort of randomly putting our, our thoughts out into the ether almost in a sort of journaling way, um, but, but something a little bit more formal than that. And, um, and you know, maybe once in a while someone who liked the same books we did would find us. But um, but actually what happened is that a lot of People who were professional critics and journalists started started reading blogs, and I think that was something that we didn't foresee. Um, at, the, at the time that I started, it was just a very small group of people, sort of chatting amongst themselves and to themselves.
1: Well, no, um, it's it's amazing to me too that it was just ten years ago, but like in the world of. Online that's like a hundred years ago, <laughs> you know like
3: it really is it really is, and i I meet a lot of um incredibly smart and talented younger uh, bloggers now who who tend to do well i I mean I often meet book bloggers, but i I meet um culture bloggers of all kinds, I guess and it's it's difficult for them, I think to Understand what the environment was like then. I mean, a lot of them were, um, you know, in the, in their mid-teens, and so this this wasn't something that they were aware of, or if they were aware of it, um, it maybe seemed like something that was a lot more structured than it actually was. for For quite some time, for about a year and a half or two years, um, it was a very small pool of people who were doing this, and, you know, most of us have have met in real life, most of that early group of people, um, at some point we've, we've encountered each other because it was such a small group that um, inevitably if someone was coming to town, even though most of us were a bunch of introverts, we would just be like, okay, well, let's all go out to a bar and meet each other.
1: Um, and did you like each so other? Was there any bad blood, or was it generally like you you totally got along?
3: Um. Well, I think for the most part we did like each other then, and and obviously there there's <laughs> there's been a lot of water under the bridge since then, and um and and some of those relationships, um you know have have become closer, and some, to say the least, have not. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was just a very friendly thing. The stakes were really, really low. We weren't making any money from it, um, and I, I still don't make any money from my blogging itself, which, which is something, in so far as my book blogging is concerned, that I've always insisted on. Why? Because I, um, I just don't really. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if I I were to write a guest post for some other venue and it were a blog and they offered to pay me, I would happily take that. Um, But for my own site, I I never wanted to feel like I had to do it. I never wanted to have to deal with advertising um, and the sort of ethical conundrum, conundra, <laughs> I'm not sure what the plural of that is, um, but that raises, so I, um, you know, and I have a day job, and I, I really didn't want my blog to become another day job. And, um,
1: and what is your day so job? I,
3: I write about tax law all day.
1: Oh, wow. Okay.
3: Yeah, I don't, I don't work on Wednesdays, but, yeah, I, I write and edit materials about tax law. And so, do, you, do
1: you like that or is that something that you you feel like you do to pay the bills? Can you can you talk about that? I mean
3: Uh well you know, I I used to like it quite a bit because I I was extremely interested in tax policy. I worked when I was first out of law school, I worked for the Florida Department of Revenue as an attorney. Um and I I was um basically You know, there's no personal income tax in Florida, so more or less all the disputes I was involved in were with corporations, usually large ones. And um, it gave me a a satisfaction to feel like I was making sure that these corporations were giving the state what the state was owed. Um, And then my husband finished up film school, which is actually the reason that we moved to New York. Neither one of us really wanted to go to California. And, um, so, so we moved here so he could pursue, um, film and TV stuff. And, um, yeah. And so I've sort of lost the train of what we, Oh, so I, so I, I was actually sad to, to leave that job. I, I really enjoyed it. And, I, I, did feel, you know, it's a cliche, but I felt like I was making a difference, a really significant monetary difference to the state, and, and it may just have been because I was, I was very young at the time, but then we moved here, and, um, and then I worked for a short time for, um, one of the big five accounting firms, and I talked to, at the time, the big five, and I talked to a couple, um, law firms that specialize in, in the area of text that I was involved in and I decided to just, I didn't want to do that. I didn't enjoy being on the, the corporate side of it and um, so I decided to switch to publishing and at first I, I took a certain amount of pleasure in summarizing things and just having an excuse to stay on top of things. And I think I felt that I might um, write about taxes for lay people. And the longer I've been there, the more my interests have drifted away from that. So I, I am still interested in tax policy, but it's difficult to maintain a really a real excitement about it when you look at the direction that this country has gone in tax policy-wise. So, um, so yeah, for me now it's, it's basically a job.
1: Okay. So then what about, you know, your interest in writing, uh, and, and your interest in books? Like, was that something like that you always knew was kind of in your back pocket and that you were going to do on the side or did that kind of evolve after the... You
3: know, I, I always wanted to be a writer and I was, I was obsessed with books when I was a kid. I, I had a, a really pretty unhappy childhood, and I got through a lot of it by reading, um, just sort of, <laughs> you know, tuning out everything that was around me and and reading as much as possible. I wasn't really allowed to watch very much television, um, so I was a voracious and indiscriminate reader. And uh, then I... You know i I was an English major in college and I, I took some writing classes and i I wrote a little bit and i I really went to law school um, as a capitulation to my father who who put a lot of pressure on me and who uh, basically you know wasn't gonna help me pay for for any other kind of graduate education and um, and to be fair to him, though, though we are estranged, um, you know, I, I was really not sure what to do with myself. I, I wasn't really sure how, how being an English major was going to help me get a job. And so I just, you know, I, and, and frankly, this is, this is a testament to what a slacker I was at the time. I took the LSAT and then the GRE was the following weekend, and it just seemed like too much trouble to take two standardized tests two weekends in a row. So I just <laughs> sort of failed on That's the G- GRE and and took the LSAT. And then I was like, okay, well I guess I'm going to law school then. That sounds um, that
1: sounds so much like my decision making process back like when I was young. <laughs>
3: yeah it was really bad i mean and i knew i was going to hate law school and and i did um i really did i i came to be really glad that i went um and i uh i never anticipated that i would take tax classes even though that's really what my dad wanted me to do you know he ha- he's ex- an extremely extremely conservative person and um He had always said that, you know, my sister and I would go into business with with him, and we would all be lawyers together. And, you know, and I capitulated to his wishes by signing up for one tax class. Um, It's it's really odd to me now, looking back, how much I just sort of ultimately did what he said at that age. And, um, And then when I got in the tax class, it was really hard, but I was also... Amazed that I was—I mean, my law school was fairly conservative anyway, but I—I I was the only liberal in the tax class. I was the only person, in fact, who didn't ardently believe that rich people should figure out how to save every possible penny of their money and um, that that taxes should be as low as possible. And so, I sort—I sort of felt. Passionate calling to do tax law because I felt like, well, if I can understand that, then at least one one person who's not of that political persuasion, you know, will will understand it and be able to explain it to, to the people who are sort of being screwed by the system. Well, yeah, and, I mean, it's not, um, it's not
1: something that it's not something that a lot of people understand with any measure of depth. It seems like.
3: Yeah, and I mean, it's it's pretty dull. Um, but I, it became a sort of, well, not a sort of, it became a passion for me. And, um, and I, I was really, really committed to this. And and I think probably if I had stayed in Florida, um, I, you know, I might have just had a really fulfilling life working for the government and, and, Focusing on that sort of thing, but even then, um, even when I was working for the state, I was I was starting to write again. Um, I had worked for a law firm for a little while, and I, I hadn't had any time to write, and I didn't have much time at all to read for pleasure when I was in law school, and um, and I think actually one thing that I felt really strongly you know, after law school, I, I had this experience of being really unsure what to read, and I would I would see stuff on tables, and I would pick it up based on blurbs. I was, you know, sort of target consumer for literary fiction. I loved stories. I didn't really know how to find them. I would read the New York Times book reviews sometimes, you know, and buy stuff based on that. and. You know, and often I was disappointed. And at the time I thought, well, I guess I just must not be very smart or I must not be as literary as I thought I was um, because I had this very grand view of New York City publishing, you know, as this institution that didn't make any mistakes. and And then once I moved here, my attitude about it changed a lot, and um, and I realized that a lot of people, um, a lot of people who love stories have that feeling. They feel they they pick something up based on maybe they listen to NPR, so they read a review there, and they're like, "Oh, this sounds cool," and then they pick up the book, and they're like, "Actually, I don't like this at all." Um, and and that happens to them a couple two or three times in a row, and then they start to feel like, well, maybe contemporary fiction isn't for me, or maybe you know, maybe I should just read the classics, or you know, um, you know, they they just start to feel intimidated, I think, and and very outside of that whole world. And when I started blogging, I think I was I was. It was a way of coming back from that feeling, I guess. A way of um, this, this sounds really grandiose, but reclaiming books for myself and just saying, "Well, this is what I like, and this is why I like it, and this is why this thing didn't work for me." And you know, when I when I first started, again, I, I really had no idea that. That I was going to be someone you know people were paying attention to I really it really felt like a small fun conversation I was having with a few people
1: well when did and then when did it change like did you could you, can you pin it down? did you do you remember a moment or a you know a period of time where you could feel a shift happening?
3: I think that I know it hmm I know that it really changed for me. It changed a little bit when New York magazine called and wanted to include me in a a little piece they were doing about blogs. Uh, But it really changed for me. A couple months after that, I believe it was October or November of 2003, um, a writer named Jennifer Howard wrote an article for the Washington Post called It's a Little Too Cozy in the Blogosphere. And it was a real critique of this world um, that I was, <laughs> I was intimately involved in, which she perceived as very cliquish and insular and, um, and exclusionary, you know, and, and my response at the time, and still basically my response today is, well, you know, the price of entry is pretty low. You know, to just go to, at the time, Blogger or whatever and hang out your own shingle and start blogging. You know, it's, I, I mean, especially then, um, it was such a small group of us that, that we were really engaging with almost everyone who was in it. Um, and so then that became, that set the tone a little bit for for the press that followed. I think some people were really, perplexed by what we were doing. Some people felt that it was an assault on intelligent journalism, um, on intelligent reading, on reading itself, on, you know, our entire civilization.
1: Well, what about, um, but what, about and- uh, what about like publishing? Was like, because, you know, you're talking about like the mainstream press. And then did you find that the response was similar from people in publishing? Did they... Uh, view you guys and what you were doing with a similar level of skepticism, or was there a better reception?
3: It was very mixed. It was, it's really it's impossible to generalize about that. Um, you know, there were a couple of really smart editors, and, and I don't just say they're smart because of what I'm getting ready to say, but they, you know, they got in touch with me and a couple other people fairly early on. Um, they, I think they were excited. They saw potential for their books. Um, they were good at, for the most part, sending me stuff that I actually liked. Um, not, not always, you know, actually uh, often I, I wouldn't write about their books, but you know, once a year, once every year and a half, they would send me something that really clicked and, um, and I wouldn't be able to shut up about it. And I think that was the real power of a blog that, that, um, you know, you still find that to some degree, but that sort of personal um, championing of something and the sort of like obsessive mentioning of it and coming back to it—you um, know—I think that that is something that that blogs offered that you know that a lot of other venues didn't, even if they, even if the New York Times uh, reviewed a book three or four different times and, and had a style piece on it and a, and a whatever piece on it. And it wasn't the same as um, seeing that book reflected through one person's obsession. And so I think that was some some editors saw that, you know, Mark Sarvis or Jessica Crispin or, um, you know, I, I'm going to insult people by, by forgetting to mention them, but, you know, George Murray of Book Ninja or, You know, a a lot of people who, Lizzie Skernick, you know, we would become fixated on something and then it was just this, um, and and sometimes other people would read it online as a result and there would be a conversation and, you know, but then at the same time there were publishers who were, and I think still are, um, skeptical about the value of personal blogs, uh, which are which are a form that has um, receded a little bit. I think. Um, yeah, I was going to say. And- I feel
1: like I feel like people aren't blogging as much as they used to, and I have no like real evidence for that other than just like what I, I guess, kind of what I see and how I just sort of feel, and and then personally what I do. Like, there's not as much yeah. as there was like five years ago. You know.
3: And why do you think that is for you? Uh,
1: yeah, you know, I feel like part of it is that I just burned out because I was doing so much of it and then the other part of it which is more prominent just has to do with the fact that i'm so busy doing other stuff like i'm facilitating more than i'm blogging right. because i'm putting this thing together uh, you know at the nervous breakdown and then doing this podcast and you know everything and i had well,
3: a and I so. said, well yeah i mean that wow that's a lot um I, I didn't the have nervous one, but, break you know my, <laughs> right, right. my wife
1: had the child but i uh, i'm helping to raise it
3: I, I hear that can be a little time consuming it's, yeah. um Okay, yeah, I have okay. a stepdaughter, so, so I know a little bit about that. She's 18, but, um, but I, I remember well when she was, when she was in diapers. Um, so, uh, I think for myself, the, um, well, I, I guess what I was going to say, first of all, is that, you know, I see sites as, sites like The Nervous Breakdown, or The Millions, or The Rumpus, or HTML Giant, or um, The Second Pass, which Sean Williams was doing before he went to work for the Times, um, I see these as the, um, the form that makes sense for now. You know, they're, they're sort of their own communities, but they also have a large community of readers. Um, they... Uh, it's, it makes sense to, it's, you know, it's a more magazine approach to, to blogging. And, um, and I do think that blogging has become more professionalized. There are, there are certain ways that things are normally done now. And, and I don't think that's, um, good or bad. You know, I think what the Los Angeles Review of Books is doing is really interesting. the new inquiry is really interesting. I mean, there, there are a lot of experiments out there. Um, and, and I'm also really happy for the most part about the increasing emphasis on long form. Um, you know, I write for the all sometimes and they're not primarily a literary site, but you know, they, they do a lot of long form stuff. That's really good. And, um, and I think that, that's an exciting thing to see. The the personal blog, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'll keep doing mine intermittently at about the same level that I've been doing it for the last couple of years because I, it's it's comforting to me to have it there and to, to check in once in a while. And if I want to post a bunch of stuff in a week, I can. Um, but... I don't think that that's what people are primarily looking for on the internet now. I mean a lot of that sort of thing has migrated to Tumblr and Facebook and will
1: you explain to me what to- Tumblr is like I my, my own personal website is on a Tumblr, and I don't even know what Tumblr is like what's the it's just like a social media blog thing I know I should probably know this, but like what oh, I think it? that's
3: right. it's it's a, it is a blog, um, but it has this you know the the reblog feature uh, and just for for people who haven't used Tumblr, I guess I should say that the reblog feature is sort of like a retweet on Twitter. You can pick up what someone has said, um but you can add to it uh, um in Twitter often there's no no room to add, but you can add to what the person has said. You can add your own anecdote. You can respond. You can criticize. You can um, you can do whatever you like, and and it's all there in the thread below the post. So it has this hybrid blog, Twitter, Facebook um, quality, and it's um. I, I think it's an exciting form. It's, uh, I, you know, Laura Miller, Salon's book critic, and I have uh, recently started a website that's about basically about the iPad and other tablets and about the potential for art and storytelling on those. Um, it's the
1: Chimerist. How do, you, how do you pronounce this? It's, the, it's called the, the Chimerist? The Chimerist?
3: I say I say Chimerist.
1: <laughs> chimerist. Um, there you go.
3: Yes. Yes. I, and I, I believe that's how Laura pronounces it as well. Um, although someone recently said chimerist and, um, Laura and I have done almost all of this in email. So I'm, so I'm, <laughs> I feel like I need to check with her and, and make sure that I'm pronouncing it the right way. Uh, but, or, or at least that we're exceed on pronunciation, but I, I think it's, I think it's chimerist. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's on a Tumblr. And, and what is um, that? Where
1: can people find that? And then what exactly is it?
3: It is at thechimerist.com. And uh, I think we're still figuring out exactly what it is. We're both people who love books and technology, which I think makes us a little bit weird uh, because for understandable reasons. A lot of people who love books are, are a little skeptical about technology and they want to hang out with their books. And I, I totally understand that because I, I love to hang out with my books. Um, but I, you know, I was a real early adopter of the internet and, and Laura even more so. She was one of the founders of Salon. And I'm just really interested in the different ways that people communicate. I'm really interested in different kinds of storytelling, even though by and large I end up, you know, gravitating most toward, um, toward novels, you know, as far as written storytelling goes or, or toward, you know, works of, of, you know, literary nonfiction or, or biographies or what have you. Um, you know, I, I'm i excited about the tablet computer. I think it's a new thing, and, and Laura's excited about it, too. And so this is, I think, an excuse for us to be adventurous, to try new apps, to talk about them with each other, and when we feel like it, talk about them on the Internet. Um and and we'll see where it goes. I don't I don't really have a clear picture of 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 what we're doing
1: yet. And, well, but that's, that sounds um, sort that's of part similar. of the fun. Well, no, that sounds sort of similar to how you started book blogging. I mean, because it brings me yeah. My-
3: that's how I feel about it. I I have the same sense of excitement about it. I feel a kind of. Uncertainty about what it is, and and an excitement and uncertainty about where it might go, and I also feel very much like, hey, you know, if both of us or one of us decided to walk away in two weeks, that would be fine. Um, so, so yeah, it's it's kind of a weird project, and. You know, considering that I'm trying to finish a novel, maybe maybe not the best thing to have launched right now. But
1: <laughs> oh, I can relate. To, I can relate to that more than you want to
0: know.
3: I well, no, I I'm always interested in other people's uh, stories of procrastination. Well, it's just like, uh, t- writers can really come up with some amazing stuff.
1: Uh, or just like, or I just, or just being like excited by too many things like, you know, and easily distracted, you know, I feel like that's my problem. Exactly. I, I jump into things so easily. And then all of a sudden I'm, uh, I'm up to my neck in it. But, you know, one of the things before we, we, uh, shift gears that I wanted to ask you related to what we were just talking about is the issue of timing because things are changing so fast because the landscape, you know, seems to mutate in significant ways, like, you know, every year, if not more quickly than that. Uh, when you look back on when you got into book blogging, uh, in particular, and then you compare it to to somebody who's trying to start now, do you ever do you, do you feel lucky that you? Ha- oh,
3: I feel ab- absolutely lucky. I I think it was, um, yeah, I I do. I I think that um, it was it was largely a matter of timing, and that we you know. We started at a time when when no one else was doing this. And, you know, uh, three years earlier, I probably wouldn't have done it. And three years later, I might have been doing something else. And um, absolutely, I feel feel incredibly lucky. Uh, But I also feel that the Internet is still an amazing place for people to create their own thing you know I mean to me the Chimerist is is that you know just I, I just I'm you know I'm a little bored with book blogging I'm I, I love books but I, I don't I'm not really um, interested in blogging as much as I used to I'm I'm moving away from from reviewing uh, because I I've decided that I think it's very important. I think that balanced criticism, negative criticism, um, positive criticism, it's vital to a healthy um, literary world. But I also think that for me personally, writing reviews with the sort of level of intense concentration and honesty that that I require of myself is actually not good for my writing, for my novel writing. Um and that I I'm more interested at least at the moment in, you know, broader cultural criticism that may be filtered through books or in um Talking with authors I love, or profiling authors I love, or writing about books I love, and I'm, I'm moving away from um, from you know I, I never set out to be a book reviewer, and that's something that I've really forced myself to realize in the last year that I just it's not something that I, I necessarily want to be doing with my time.
1: Okay, so that's but that's interesting. Like when especially the part about where you talk about uh how it affects your your fiction writing, like what is it specifically right. about writing a book review or working you know the part of your brain that deals with criticism that affects the creative aspects
3: i I think that my i'm a, I'm an extremely perfectionistic person um, and also I have extremely idiosyncratic tastes um, and I think when you're writing fiction, both of those things are very important. But it's also important to be able to sit down and write the thing that you need to write, and um, and then bring, ideally, the perfectionism to bear on it on it later. Um, I, I think I my feeling is that I've spent a lot of time. Focusing on books that, um, you know, maybe maybe I wouldn't necessarily have have read so intently if I hadn't set out to review them, and that I I just need to be able while I'm writing to focus on the things that are feeding that desire to write, and also to. Um, give rein to those critical impulses, these very natural critical impulses that I have only to the extent that they're helpful to my own writing. Um, It it can be extremely paralyzing, I think, when you're just constantly looking at everything in a really critical way uh, to then go to your own work and try to be forgiving of your own shortcomings and your own bad sentences and, and your own... Failure to, you know, create whatever it is that you're trying to create, and um, yeah, and I, I've I've decided that at least right now that that kind of reviewing is is just not something that's working in the favor of my own writing.
0: Hmm.
1: And I wonder if it works in the in the opposite uh, respect as well. Like I wonder if you're a professional critic and then you decided to start to dabble in actually writing creatively, if suddenly that would diminish your skills as, as a, you know, your critical skills, you know what I'm That's saying?
3: That's a really good question. And, and I think, I mean, I, obviously there are, are many people who can do both things well. Um, I mean, if you look at someone like Daniel Mendelssohn, um, who, you know uh, as far as I know he's not a fiction writer I, I may be embarrassing myself but I, I believe that he has has only written nonfiction but he writes beautifully um, I, I mean I I disagree with him um, often but he he writes beautifully as a critic and um, and just as a as a writer as a storyteller and uh, so it, so it's hard to generalize but I'm sure that there must be critics who whose um, critical uh, acumen or, or critical standards are thrown off balance a little bit as they try to to write um, more creatively.
1: So, l- speaking of writing creatively, like I, I want to hear more about the novel that you're working on, and is, this is the same book that. Um, the the excerpt from which won the narrative prize, correct?
3: It it is yes. I've been working on it for mumble mumble years now, and um, yeah, it, it is it is that book. And um, do we have a title? You know, I was just we do. Um, and I really really like the title, and I'm not sure when I'm going to be done with it. So I'll I'll tell you the title, but but I'm not going to tell you for the podcast because. I'm I'm constantly afraid that someone else is going to use it because it's one word and it's a really great title.
2: Okay.
3: Um, if I do say so myself, um, you know, if if down the line I finish it and um, and you know, I'm fortunate enough that it's going to be published. Maybe the publisher will disagree with me and make me change the title. But right now, the title is the only thing I feel sure about. <laughs> um. <laughs>
1: Well, that's a start, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, um, it's the whole. It's the whole word. Um, yeah. So, this has been a real, um, a really long project. And uh, what what would you like to know about it?
1: Well, I, I think like one of the things about it is that interests me is the essay that you wrote, I believe, for the Los Angeles Times uh, after you have won the Narrative Prize. And forgive me if I'm screwing up the. Oh no,
3: that's right. You're
1: you're right about that. You wrote an essay, and it was the decision that you made to write your story as a novel rather than to write it as a memoir, because, uh, as you alluded to earlier, you know you had a pretty uh, difficult childhood, which you know despite its. Despite the troubles you know inherent in that it tends to lend itself well to uh, a memoir or storytelling in general you know absolutely so yeah what yeah you, what was the decision making process where you said well i'm going to mine this material um, just as any writer does, you know they're going to turn inward at least to some extent, but i'm I'm going to fictionalize it rather than write it uh as a memoir like what, what why did you arrive at that place
3: well i I think you know there was a time when I was being encouraged to write a memoir of the sort that was very popular about five to eight years ago um the sort of you know memoir about the miseries of my childhood and overcoming those miseries and and um and that's not really the way that I see my life, exactly. I, yes, um, obviously I've I've moved beyond a, a lot of that, but I, I also feel that it, it continues to, um, to define who I am in some ways, and I, I just I I didn't there seemed to be a sort of boilerplate uh, way of of writing a memoir at the time, and so I think, you know, partly that essay was um, a little bit of a delayed reaction to that that um, encouragement that I had gotten, but I I also think, you know, I'm, I have no issue. I mean, I, you know, I wrote an essay called Conversations You Have at 20, and, you know, it's a pretty blunt essay about you know, a, a little bit of stuff from my childhood and about this terrible relationship that I had when I was in college. And um, you know, it's it's I really didn't hold anything back there. Um, so I, I don't have an issue with telling people what my life has been like. It's a question of. What makes for the kind of truth that I'm trying to tell, what the best the best way to arrive at that truth and um, my feeling with this particular book, which has changed a lot over time and, and is changing again, um, is that I'm trying to tell a kind of truth that really can only be told through fiction. Um, and, in, and in fact, over time, it's become better and better the more I've moved away from my own life. So um, I'm taking feelings from my own life and to some degree experiences from my own life, but I'm I'm changing them into something different. And it may be that later on I, I will write essays about, about some of the things that actually happened, but I just don't really feel a desire to write a memoir and um, you know, I, I had a lot of ideas about why that was when I when I wrote that LA Times piece and I still stand by a lot of what I said there, but I I think also it's it's just a personal preference. You know, I'm just not drawn to that form and um I I would be more likely to tell little stories in the essays I think than to write a long um, memoir, and you know there and there are great absolutely wonderful um, memoirs um, that i I would never be able to write. so i I feel a little bit like I in the moment i I was a little bit more dismissive of the genre than I actually um, feel is is right.
1: Yeah. That well, I mean, that's stuff. fair though. You know, like that's the thing. I mean, it, it's people sometimes I think hold, you know, writers uh, or people who are thinking aloud publicly, you know, to, a to the, a, like an irrational standard, which is to say that it, you know, you can't change your mind or, you know, that once it's said, that's what it all, you know, that's how you always feel. But, you know, it's always just kind of like a stamp in time and then things mutate, you know?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I read this memoir last year, uh, written by this um she she lives in l a and she's lived in New York, but she's a British writer uh, from London named Emma Forrest. and um it it was just such a lovely memoir. It was about her um, relationship with her psychiatrist, who died. And it was also about her relationship with Colin Farrell, um, the actor, and uh, who who had been her boyfriend. And it was called "Your Voice in My Head." And it was uh, a completely unique piece of writing that I still um, that I still think about often. There was a line in there, something like. Um, Mania rushes like it was, it was more beautiful than this, but something like mania rushes like water approaching a waterfall. Uh, depression is a stagnant pond or something like that, and and the whole book is just filled with, the, filled with these poetic um, but very plain spoken metaphorical comparisons and and insights that I um, that really really impressed me. And so, so I think that memoir is is a form that, you know, holds many possibilities, and I just don't think that I'm a memoirist fundamentally.
1: So do you have any, any set sense uh, in your mind of when this novel's going to be done? Have you given yourself a deadline, or do you feel like you're close, or do you have no idea?
3: Well, I had given myself a deadline, and I, I finished... Um, most of a draft of it, the, the vast majority of a draft of it, and I I showed it to um, a friend of mine with whom I had, you know, she's an agent, and, and we had talked about the possibility of working together, but I, you know, I had also talked with a lot of other agents over time, and I, I wasn't really planning to make a decision when I showed it to her. I just showed it to her to kind of what she said. I knew it still needed some work. And I really felt that what she said was right. Um, she asked me, I had decided to, to break up what I was trying to do into two different books. And she asked me why I had done that. And I said that it was because I thought what I wanted to do was too ambitious. And I wasn't sure if I could do it. And she said well, that's not a good reason. And she said, you know, this, this is really good. Um, but I think what you really want to do is do that other book. I think that you want the more complex story. And she, you know, she said she, she, <laughs> I don't know if this is exactly how she put it, but I, I think she said or implied that she could feel that other story straining to get out because it was still in there a little bit. And I knew she was right when she said that. And she she had some other comments that I wasn't sure about. And, and we met a couple of times and I really explained to her my thinking about a few things. And she was able... Um, to explain to me a couple of things, why a few things... I'm sorry I'm speaking so vaguely, but basically, you know, this one character, she was able in a sentence to explain to me why the character wasn't as fully realized for her as she wanted the character to be. And what she said was just so insightful and brilliant that I completely understood what I needed to do. And I, and then I just felt, you know, we really need to work together. You know, I recognize again that I'm extremely fortunate to be in the position of, of, you know, of being able to show something that I thought was finished, but turns out not to be finished to an agent and then have her be willing to, to talk with me about it on an, on an ongoing basis. Um, I, I do recognize that that's really a luxury these days, uh, but I, I really trust her. And you know, I've talked to other agents over time, and and they've had some really good thoughts and whatnot. But I, I just knew after our conversations that that she was the right person to work with, and that she really got what I was trying to do, and that she was she wasn't going to be, to tell me no, that's not working, you have to do this instead. But she was going to be able to tell me, okay, well, here's why this, this isn't fully there yet. Here's, here's the thing that's missing from what you're trying to do. And ultimately, I, I am a perfectionist. And, you know, what she said to me, you know, that's not to say the novel will be any good <laughs> when it's done. That's, that's up to, to critics to say. But, um, you know, obviously, I hope it will. But, you know, she said to me, you're the kind of person who you want to write the best novel you can write, and you shouldn't feel pressured to rush. You should just take the amount of time it takes for you to write that book. And that was really um, calming and affirming to me. And I, I just it was a message that I that I really needed to hear because I had just started to feel like, oh my God, I'm the most ridiculous person in the world. I've been talking about a book that doesn't even exist on the internet for years, and I just need to get it done. And she really helped me move past that way of thinking. Hmm. Um,
1: that's, so. a, that's interesting to hear. No, I mean, because I'm, I'm talking about the book that I'm working on on this show and then some mornings I'll sit down to work on it and I'll be like, oh God, I better, this better be good. <laughs> you know, Like <laughs> I, I better get this done soon so that people know that I'm not completely, you know, full of it or whatever it is. But, you know, it, it's, it's an odd tension in creative life. And I've talked about this recently with people, uh, possibly on this show where, uh, you know, always in hindsight, it seems I look back and I get very nostalgic about the actual process of writing something. And how much fun it was, you know. When I'm looking looking at it in the rearview mirror, but uh, when I'm actually working on something, there's like this almost desperate desire to to get it over with and get it out of me. You know what I'm saying? Like it's this weird tension, like where I look back on a god, you know, the the doing of the thing was really the good part. And when I'm actually doing the thing, I'm like, let's just get this over with. I just want it to be externalized, and I think that's normal, you know. But it doesn't make it make that you know any more sense. You
3: know? Yeah, it's. I think everyone's everyone's sense of the writing process and which part is the most horrible is you know, <laughs> it's sort of variable. <laughs> um, and for me, I know it varies depending on on what I'm doing at the time. Usually, meaning that that part is is the most horrible part of writing. But um, I think I mostly the thing I enjoy most is sentence level revising when I'm basically satisfied with something and now I'm just really going in there and going over every comma and trying to figure out what it is about this one sentence, why it's still frustrating me. Um, you know, that that level of writing I enjoy, but the, with very rare exceptions, um, writing writing fiction is always really difficult for me. Um,
1: That's nice to hear. I I, I can never hear that enough. You know, I like knowing that there are other people out there suffering, you know,
3: (laughs) (laughs) I I completely agree. Well, you're not alone. I promise you. Right. Um, and, and judging from conversations with friends, you, you know, you have a multitude of company. So, um, (laughs)
1: Well, before we, uh, before I let you go, I want to ask about uh, your childhood. You know, you've alluded to it in the conversation several times. And, you know, without getting too um, sensationalist about it, like, I just want to know, like, you know, how, how did you grow up? And, like, w- what formed you and made you into a writer? Like, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah,
3: I can. I mean, I... I definitely don't think we have enough time to, to discuss like all of the ways in which my childhood was, was absurd and, um, and, 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 bad. Um, I, I think when I was very little, I, I came to, my parents were both really, really intense and obsessive people who rarely agreed about anything. So, um, I think from a fairly young age, I became attuned to certain kinds of absurdities that a a lot of children are shielded from because their parents present a more united front. I mean, there was, you know, there was a lot of religious extremism in my family. There was, you know, my father is an extremely, extremely overbearing person who... um, you know, but but also just have sort of weird antisocial behaviors, you know, like, I mean, I, I, I hate to tell this story because it really freaks people out, but like, you know, after my parents' divorced, he would be making toast for my sister and me and like, you know, he'd never clean out the toaster, but he'd always make cheese toast and cheese would fall on the bottom of the toaster, so then there would be a roach in the toaster. He would remove the cheese toast from the toaster, spray it into the toaster, wait until the roach had stopped twitching, and then put the toast back into the toaster and finish cooking it and serve it to us. And so there was just a lot of sort of crazy stuff going on that, um, (laughs) that I was at a pretty early age aware wasn't normal. Um, but that I didn't really feel I had any power to affect. Um, you know, my mom believed in demons and professed to see them everywhere, and I, I believe that she believes that she saw and sees them everywhere. Um, I never saw them, so that was, but I, I passionately loved my mother, and I, I passionately wanted her to be right and my father to be wrong. So, um, so it's, it was a very confusing childhood, and I think that um, I came to be very good at seeing other people's points of view, and you know, trying to anticipate um, how how people would react to things, and and for whatever reason, all of that. To lead me towards storytelling, uh, my mother is a, is a storyteller. She was a preacher
1: for, now, for religion, a number of years. What religion? were you raised in? I mean, was it a was it like one of the one well? Of the big ones,
3: I I, actu- I actually, and I, I know we're running out of time, but I actually um, I just wrote an essay for the New York Times Magazine. So you know, if it if it doesn't get killed, it, it will be a little bit about this. But um, my my parents were. My mother was raised atheist, my father was raised Methodist. Um, When I was a young child between the ages of three and four, they became Presbyterian together and they were like a born-again sort of version of Presbyterian, but my mother soon became disenchanted with the predestination aspects of, of Presbyterianism, meaning that humans don't actually have free will. Um, that that everything is preordained, and so she started reading her own Bible and ultimately became uh, speaking in tongues, casting out demons, storefront preacher type of person, Um, and a lot of her congregation was, um, you know, drug addicts and and, uh, some prostitutes and, you know, just people who were really looking for salvation of one kind or another and um so
1: and you were there among you, know, the, you you were there in the in the congregation with these people
3: oh yeah yeah and and my parents divorced over that I mean, they used to have like screaming arguments about religion in the front yard with my mother like tearing pages out of the Bible and myself it was crazy. Um, but yeah, and then I I wrote a little thing for Granta a number of years ago about, it's it's online, it's very short, um, about this prostitute who went to my mom's church who, unbeknownst to my father, was living with us before my parents got divorced and she was, um, she was living in my bedroom (laughs) and,
1: A very, uh, a very normal childhood experience. (laughs)
3: Yeah, I would wake her up in the morning before he came in to wake me up for school, and she would get in the closet. Wow! So um, yeah, so it was. I mean, and and this is sort of just really scratching the surface of, of the the bizarrness of it all. But um, but yeah. So so I I think I'll just stop there.
1: <laughs> well, and you know, <laughs> there's a. Uh... You know, a lot of this stuff, I mean, I can you say this and you just skim the surface and you get started and immediately like I'm, I want to read about this. So I kind of understand you know, it helps me to understand why people were pushing you in the direction of a memoir. And at the same time, it makes me uh, interested to see what you'll come up with uh, with this novel that you're working on, because I'm sure in some way, shape or form, a lot of these different anecdotes and experiences are going to find their way in there, even if they're reconstituted or, you know, uh, changed a bit.
3: I mean that was my original thought, and and it I'm I'm moving away from some of that, which may mean that I end up writing some essays about that stuff instead, or or they may find their way back in. And I feel very much, I feel much more focused right now with the novel on the narrator's present day life, quote unquote, which is which is a lot less directly connected with me. So that's the part that I'm working on now, and as that part consumes my imagination, some of the, the stuff about her younger years um, seems less relevant. And I, I don't think that I will have a clear picture of how it's all going to end up sitting together until I finished writing about her her quote-unquote present-day life in the book.
1: Well, you know, uh, it sounds fascinating, and uh, I, I'm eager to see uh, what it looks like when it's done, and I appreciate you taking the time to come talk with me. This has been really great.
3: Well, thank you. This has been wonderful. I've, I've really enjoyed it, and I look forward to seeing your book, too.
1: All right, Maud. Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, guys, there you go. That's the program. That's Maud Newton. You can find her on the web at Maudnewton.com. Uh, she's on Facebook, and she's on Twitter. Her handle is at Maud Newton. Don't forget, this show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. And if you're not yet subscribing over at iTunes, please go do that. It's free, and it's easy, and it's enjoyable. Uh, you can also find the show on Stitcher, also free. So if you're a Stitcher person, please go subscribe there. Uh, if you want to follow the program on Twitter, the handle is at otherpeoplepod. You can follow me at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the theme song music. Please be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And thanks to Valley Jones for the transitional music. So uh, final thoughts on AWP and Chicago. Uh, I do have to say I love Chicago. It's a great town, great people, great bars, uh, amazing food. It is uh, the perfect city in which to uh, have events like AWP, whether or not withstanding. And uh, the travel experience was pleasant. Uh, good flights going and coming, uh, except for the fact that American Airlines did not have Wi-Fi on my flight home, which I found onerous and uh, unnecessary. Uh, you know, and flying in general, always an interesting experience. There was a woman on my flight back to Los Angeles who was comically well-prepared for travel. Uh, she had her neck pillow. She had large noise-canceling headphones. She had a water bottle belt, like a, an actual belt with water bottles and holsters. And uh, she also had a lanyard around her neck into which her driver's license and her boarding pass were stuffed. And uh, she was sitting right in front of me, and she was so absurd that she made me feel good about things. Uh, I'm a little bit of a nervous flyer, as I think almost everyone is, at least a little bit. And whenever I board a plane, I'm always looking around at the other passengers, trying to decide if they seem doomed. You know, it's, it's always like, uh, is this the group of people that I'm going down with? Is today the day? Is this the group? And, uh, and then I saw that woman... And uh, immediately knew that I was okay. Somehow. I I was just like, there's no way I'm going down with this broad. No way. It's not happening. So, uh, I think that's it for today. That's number 50 in the can. It's done. It happened. Uh, I'm hungry. And I'm going to eat something. Please enjoy yourself. Please remember that Albert Einstein was an agnostic. Please remember that Cyrano de Bergerac was the first person in recorded human history to suggest that rocket ships might one day take us into outer space. And, uh, please remember the famous last words of George Harrison uttered just before he passed away. Know what they were? Three words. Here's what he said. Love one another. That's it. That's what he said. And uh, I think that's, uh, is that profound? That's all you need to know. Uh, hallelujah. Hari Krishna. Hari Krishna.